Hello and welcome to the Chicana Code Switchers podcast. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicana scholar practitioners in higher education. Each episode, we discuss insights, tips, and resources for students and practitioners in higher education with a focus on social justice and platicas. With that being said, let's start this episode. So welcome, everybody, to another episode of Chicana Code Switchers. So, Ariana, tell us what, you're, what you've been up to in the past few, few weeks since we last recorded. Yeah, so it's been um, interesting, to say the least. Um, I am working from home still and, you know, having conversations about going, going back in person next year and the plans for coming back and all of those things. And it's kind of hard to, you know, it's kind of hard to project so far in advance because anything can happen. Um, things are still up in the air and, but the expectations from, you know, my supervisor still that I'm going to be there every day. And, um, and in my mind, you know, because obviously, as I've shared before, I'm going to be, uh, starting my graduate school program in September. So it's kind of like, I know that I'm going to not be there next year. So that's kind of like a little bit of a internal satisfaction that I'm just like, yeah, sure. Okay. (laughs) But it's unfortunate, right, because that I'm not able to share, you know, have that kind of relationship with my supervisor where I'm able to share what's going on. On a personal level, it's basically mostly focused on tasks and what's next and are you ready and have you prepared. And and it's like, it's unfortunate that I'm just going to have to put in my two weeks notice and llega ni cuenta, right? And the fact that a lot of staff, especially working at universities, I feel like the common thread is like you get, you know, like within other staff and other faculty staff are seen as here's this task managers and here's this like personal secretary or the people who are doing um, the behind the scenes work, but they don't understand like what you have to like deal with on a day to day basis, especially transitioning into a new position online and how much you don't know a lot of these like different pieces and people uh, and how to do it. And then you just get minimized into a task manager person. Yeah. Like you have to like do these documents and not see that you're a person and a human and that regardless of whatever staff are going through, like you're expected to perform like at a thousand yeah. percent. Um, and it's interesting because I, I've been in other meetings with faculty are like, we appreciate stuff. Kind of like how we like generally see society, like we praise janitors and frontline workers and in in the universities the staff are also like one of the people that are like constantly either interacting with uh, folks doing customer service doing um crisis management and conflict management within all the people that are working in the department and they say oh thank you for our staff but then it's like so patronizing because at at the same time like they their behavior doesn't show that gratitude because they have this urgency and expectation they're supposed to be available 24-7. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and so por eso es que I'm just like, you know what, you're going to be acting this way. Well, I'm also going to not feel like you deserve to know what's going on. Because one, you don't, you never ask me. And two, it doesn't seem to matter. So um, I'm just counting down the days and 
I'm really excited to have a break <laughs> soon. And uh, what else? So graduation is on Friday. So I'm helping plan for those undergrads and grad students. And honestly, like, I feel like because it's going to be virtual, the interest at this point, it's like, blah, it's like, no one wants to sit down really to for an hour to see a virtual graduation celebration from the department. So I've had like a small turnout, like a small response rate for participating on the, on this event. So we'll see how it goes. Um, and I'm back in California, so it's different. Um, I was in Berkeley last week and it was interesting to see, it was interesting to kind of be plopped back into this, like, right, like this fishbowl and I'm in Berkeley and I'm going into this target to, to one, buy something and two, go to the bathroom. And as I walk in the person who's the security person that's by the door, I'm like, okay, let, should I ask him? Should I not ask him? Okay, fine. I'll ask him where the bathroom is. And as I'm approaching him and I have my mask on, I'm like, excuse me, can you, I'm barely getting the words out and I'm barely like getting closer because he can't hear me because I have my mask on. He's like, whoa, 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 like back off six feet. And I'm like, what? Like one, I'm not trying to be that close. I'm just trying to be close enough so you can hear me. And then I just said, whatever. And I just walked, walked on to ask someone else. But it was just different how like paranoid people still are. And I'm like, isn't there like a whole national, like didn't the president announce that we can now walk around if we're vaccinated without masks and stuff. But it was like, it wasn't like I wasn't wearing my mask. I was wearing my mask and I was keeping my distance, but approaching him slowly to ask him a question. It was just like kind of weird. And then going into a coffee shop like Pete's, completely empty, no tables. I'm like, okay. Oh, really? yeah, it's different, right? Because it's Berkeley. Um, it's a whole different kind of feel. And I, and I think for in general, it's unfortunate that a lot of our, especially for the people who are working in retail or those like high trafficked people that are coming back in and because of the way that people have interacted with these folks, like that's why a lot of like people are like super, like you need to like, they need to like be very like outspoken about it because I can imagine a lot of people have not respected that before. Um, and I've seen just like way too many like TikTok videos. No salgo de mi casa. Like I, I didn't travel to Puerto Rico. <laughs> like, Ariana. So I've been around here, but it's like so many videos uh, around of like how many people are like super confrontational and like at the stores for just asking like a question. So I'm like, I feel like everybody just have like some sort of like, like trigger uh, whenever like people come into contact or like not wanting to go in person to certain things or and especially because of how much distrust there is in the whole community and like everywhere, because like, honestly, like people are not the way that people are handling it and everyone is that at their own. And there's no like specific interest in keeping like public health or public safety, like as a, as a community concern, like everybody's kind of like doing their own thing and creating like responses like that. So either people are like, no, touch me, don't come close to me. Or there's like, because there's like so much distrust on how people are handling it. Yeah, I think it's, there's way too much. It's unfortunate that 
you know, they, they bear the brunt of it all. Um, but yeah, that, those were one of the main differences. Cause, and that's why I also went to Puerto Rico was because I saw how things were there in December and I'm like, and how things were here and they, everything was, you know, except for like grocery stores, everything was pretty much closed. And I'm like, you know what? let me go somewhere where it's not as strict and it's um, more open and flexible and, but they were enforcing, you know, sanitizing your hands, checking your temperature at like, as soon as you entered the stores um, and you can go to the beaches, you, you know, like the coffee shops, they were at a certain percent full, you know, mm-hmm. I could work from a coffee shop just like before. Um, no and here it's been like totally different like where people like legit are not putting their mask on until they like have to or be told in front of the door um people have like not respected the space or even at least like wash your hands or it's just like super like oh like it's just so like frustrating the fact that there's so many people who are just like you just like the simple things right over there uh, in different um, lugares, like they they have this like sense of like, oh yes, we should you know do this. But in here, it has not. Like I've seen way too many people like be super like just very simple things like wearing a mask, like really legit like wearing a mask is just like one of the many things that we can do, and not even that people want to do. And so yeah. um, even if you're fully vaccinated and stuff, like there's like still the distrust that other people are lying that they've had their vaccine or that they're not. I mean, there has been people now, and I've seen this on social media that are now doing threads and confessionals that they never wore masks, that they had COVID and they had been going around spreading it everywhere. And people are like legit like even videos, right. Of saying like, well, I've never, you know, that like, con, like todo el descaro del mundo of saying that on social media and saying that they've never like took care of themselves and they knew that they had COVID and perspective. Like, those are the people that like, why there's so much distrust. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, unfortunate because we could have like gone back to like our regular, you know, schedule programming, um, before, but we still are like way past a whole year and still in the same situation. Um, and talking about going back to campus, there has been new hires in, on my campus. So like now it's even harder to like justify going back to campus because we just don't have the actual space for the number of people that they want to hire. So um, the repopulation stuff is like pending because based on our union contract, which again, I don't even get the whole point of a union when it's managed in the way that our union is managed. You know, unions are really effective and great if they actually work. Um, but when you have the unions like side by side with like the administration where they're not really doing anything new or different, then it's pretty hard to be an effective union. But um, so our union just mentioned that if, it, if a position or a person is asked to go in, back in person, it has to be everybody. Um, so if everybody needs to go back, uh, the agreement was that every single manager kind of handles their thing. So at this point, there would be way too many people and there's not enough space for our office. So I think we're still going to be working from home. And there has been a huge, you know how I mentioned in our last episode that they wanted to like restructure a bunch of things and advising and stuff. 
pues como en good old fashioned higher ed, they had to postpone and backtrack on that because they don't have a lot of things set for it anyway. So I feel like, you know, when they say that they're going to do something, but then it takes like 10 years to actually get it done. Yeah. This is what's happening right now. So I just find it like whenever there's an announcement, you just take it with a grain of salt, knowing that it probably is not going to happen. Or if it is, it's going to take like 10 years, which who knows if you're going to even be there or not right. by then. So I just find it annoying that like when there's these big announcements, you no pasa nada and you're just like, okay, so what's, what was the whole point of like riling us all up for nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. But in a personal level, I've been dealing with a ton of like adult bureaucracy bullshit So I went through my court thing that I did for, um, as an update from our, the last time I spoke, the apartment, the student apartment that I used to, for anybody who needs a small recap, the student apartments that I used to work or live in when I was back in my grad program had sent me a bill of like close to like $400 for like outstanding charges, like the move-in charges, which I was trying to sue them over through small claims court. So I went through the whole small claims court process. My date was postponed from January of this year to May. And then once I arrived to the court, I couldn't go through the whole court hearing because out of all the paperwork that I had to submit and all the whole process, the defendant, meaning the person I was suing, uh, did not get served the court papers. And I was like, this is, this is the one thing that I'm like, I, I don't work in a court. I don't work in any of that stuff. So like, that's not my, my specialization or um, the, the stuff that I, that I do on a daily basis to even know about, but how dumb is it that you can have a court without having the whole thing? It's like, why didn't you notify or have a system to update people on that To Because there were so many people missing in the court. Like there was like only either the defendant or the plaintiff present, but I'm like, why have this? If you like don't have a system that it's easy to verify because they're so old school that you have to call for everything during work hours, which again, if you're an adult, you don't have time to be doing. And especially for jobs like ours, which is advising, you have a full schedule if like you're at peak advising hours, right? Like who the hell has time to do all of this? So I was so frustrated and so outdated and like all like up in my feelings because I'm like I went and drove down for like three hours to Fresno to get this thing done for someone to tell me in like three minutes that I can't proceed with all of this like I had my witness ready my pictures my evidence my opening statement total for this and I was just like super upset so I was like what the hell is this and it's made to discourage you of course like unless you have like millions of dollars to like hire a lawyer and have the leisure and time to do all of this it's impossible to like go through like actual justice because the soul stupid system is just meant and again a court hearing if nobody has ever gone to a court hearing the judge can sway one or the other it's just a matter of who is more persuasive with their evidence even if they lie so yeah. i'm like what kind of bullshit is this yeah so I this mean- whole time you can spend all the money and resources and it's just like the other person could have just been a more convincing liar. Yeah, I mean, that's what lawyers are for. <laughs> but in small claims court, you can't take a lawyer. That's a thing. And no, that's what where... Saying, what I'm saying is that lawyers, you know, when 
you do hire them, they they defend your your stance, whether it's right or wrong. They they make a statement. Right. Which brings me back to like, especially the Derek Chauvin like trial, like how much people were just like really annoyed about the whole process. And I'm like, that's like again, unfortunately, how the court works. Mm-hmm how it's designed to do and although we definitely clearly saw who was at fault through not not only knowing how oppression works but also like just the video in of itself they still still needed proof they still needed proof and how many different every single step of the process of the whole trial of the whole even getting to get a trial like every single system was trying to stop from it to even happen. So that's why I like, I, I don't think people have seen or again, come across court hearings enough to even see how much this is just fabricated, created, and then like pushed a specific agenda in order for that trial to even happen. If imagine if that trial was so hard to get on and the actual hearing, imagine all the other ones who didn't have as much publicity in order to even be counted as a, as a, as an opportunity to even get some sort of, it is not justice. It's just, again, some sort of criminal punishment that is not really making that person either repair the harm that they've created or held accountable for their actions. Like actually like you need you, there's consequences to the actions that you have when it comes to, especially people in power, like police. Right. And how long it takes, you know, just like, how long did that trial take? Like a year? A whole year. And then like, even like my small courts claim thing, it took like almost a year too to even like see it. But that time, like shit, like that money that they charge me, like for someone who is living paycheck to paycheck, if they were in that same situation as me, like that's a huge chunk of living expenses that you need to like feed yourself, to clothe yourself, to, you know, have shelter, just the bare busy basics. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is like, that's the whole part of like, that's so frustrating. And then once I moved into my new apartment, being to like apartment leasing office, no, maybe you don't have parking permit. And they said that it was okay that I could just stay there. And because I was working that day, I was like, you know what? It's just like one little thing that slips in your mind, especially when you're moving from one place to another, dealing with so many different things going on in your life. And I got my car towed and I was just like, <laughs> like, Oh, like I was just like on top of like dealing with all this, like bureaucracy from the court trial from in May. Then I have this tow truck situation happen at the end of May uh, or early June. I don't even remember, but it was just like, it was like it, towards the end of May, early June. Um, and I was just like, this is like some, I'm telling you like BS adult thing where the to like why, like I never understand adult bureaucracy of like, why ask for information if it's completely useless and then you get punished for it. That's like my biggest pet peeve in this <laughs> experiencing adult stuff because why have your car in the lease that say it's that, that's your car and that's your parking permit or your parking spot. And like, no one complained about it, but a tow truck can come in predatorily looking for you to see if you even have a stupid uh, parking permit thing and then tow it for the stupid shape while not even knowing the laws. 
And in, in order for you to get your car back, again, you have to pay $400 because it's a state fee. It's not really the tow company's thing. But that money, again, goes to who does it go to? The fucking city and most likely police. So it's like all that money goes to that. And they won't release your thing. And then the person in their uh, office acts all like, I got a person who spoke Spanish and I was there angry. And then they're like, let me, and then they were white. It was a white Latino uh, who spoke Spanish. He's like, hablan español. And then he started like, um, like patronizing us and telling us about the lease laws. And I was like, shut the fuck up. Like, I, I, I get that. But the dumb part is your office needs to call the, the leasing manager and the, the police to report all of this or else like that's car theft you stole my car <laughs> and I'm just like but I just got so angry and at the end I just told the leasing office and they're gonna apply that money that I paid supposedly to the credit for the next month's rent or whatever but still like just having your car stolen like that like those are just like one like many ways that like all these systems are there to be predatory towards people and especially people who like either don't know the rules, don't have the money for, um, don't have the time to do this. And it's like, so unfortunate. I'm like, they're like, why do these people have the power to do all this? Although there's every law there to supposedly protect us, but no importa because they try to use any leverage that they can to do that they can. And then when you try to get justice, you can't because there's a whole bureaucracy behind it in order to get it and money to spend to to get any of that stuff. And especially if you're low income, there's no way to get that done. So I was just hella pissed. This whole past yeah. Well, you know, Mercury retrograde was retrograde last week. I wish like Mercury Mercury retrograde helped with like people in power. Like, why don't they yeah. get hit with any of that stuff? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, yeah, you just reminded me that I got um a notice to serve a uh, in in the court as a jury court jury oh you got court jury duty yeah and um I was like I don't think I can do this and then I checked the back of the paper or of the notice and it said that I can't because I'm not a U.S. citizen so mm-hmm. I called them today and it was pretty simple but like you I don't trust the system because I had to call press the number select the option right and then said um press zero if you want to uh, connect with um with a representative yeah so I'm like I'm pressing zero uh she the lady picks up and I just confirm I just wanted to double check that it went through and she's like yep you did it perfectly but like you I'm like I don't trust these these systems what if I think that I'm released from this and that I did what I needed to do and then later they you don't yeah It's so annoying because then even in my own job, right, when you're working with students, they have to fill out like 5 billion like petitions to do any little thing outside of like the norm and how much like people don't understand nuance, right? Like how much people like leverage the processes. So if there's any little like complication where like you're just way outside of what the norms are or anything like that. People just don't know how to function and how to do. And so therefore you're there for like three hours trying to get in contact with a representative. And that's the thing that's like so annoying because like when I'm working with students, like if they need to petition excess units, if they need to petition to, you know, get a permission code, if they need to an exemption for certain things, 
especially currently with a lot of students with like um, different abilities, like they're like uh, neurodivergent, like it's so challenging to get people to understand that they have like, they need accommodations for certain things. And there's like, well, you need documentations for every little thing. And I'm just like, in some of it, I'm like, how much is it that, why don't we also acknowledge and accept that these are adults? Cause they, they don't get treated like they're adults. And also the second one is like, why do you need so much private information? Like at the end of the day, the student is the one who is going to benefit or penalize themselves. There's a natural consequence for them lying. And if they don't, they, if they have a different um, set of accommodations that they need, like it's like them, right? But then like even other like neurotypical students, they could probably need that same accommodation that they can benefit from too if we were actually like very inclusive to different life, you know, either dynamics, lifestyles, needs. But it's just been very frustrating the past two weeks or two months about the stupid bureaucracy that we have and how dumb it is to like have a complaint or have people held accountable for their own error because it's again, none of that. But for the update about the court overcharge, I got a, I got a mail an email saying that the apartments are actually going to send me a check for the charges. Really? So I was like, I wonder why, but my roommate didn't get a, a refund. Well, she but did. I did. <laughs> she didn't try to go to the court. Same, did she put in the same work? No, she didn't put it. She didn't try to sue them. She paid them automatically. So there was like only like one email where she just tried to get like, um, like a clarifying about it but she didn't try to go through the whole process that I did was just trying to sue at the end I was so frustrated because I just told the judge I'm like I'm, I'm just not interested in moving forward with this lawsuit because that would mean that I would have to postpone my court date for a new the, another date serve the actual court papers to the uh, apartments and then go through again I was like do you know how much money it is to just spend a whole day off to drive all the way there to get like a car or like food or, you know, like it's just too much of a headache. So I just decided to stop ending. I was like, whatever, fuck it. You know, like at this point I'm like hella pissed. And now I'm getting my money back. Maybe who knows? I still haven't received a check. So they were supposed to email it, but that's like the stupid, like they apartment. They should have just done that crap. from the beginning and it would have avoided you all of this trouble and headache. Yeah. And I'm just like, you should just send in some extra money for the emotional distress and the inconvenience. Exactly. But that's not how it works in their mind because it, they love to traumatize people first and then backpedal and just say, oh no, like here's their money and no apology, no acknowledgement of what they did. It was just as if like nada pasó and then here's your money. And I was like a whole as you're late yeah hey well at least you're getting your money back maybe <laughs> so i haven't gotten the check girl so <laughs> we have to wait until the, it until that check hits my bank account <laughs> yes uh nothing had happened or they, they're still in the wrong either way but um i just hope that people would just like understand why we've been like mia <laughs> <laughs> for the last past like months because not only are you dealing with stuff at work and your whole move from like one uh country to another and trying to reacclimate to california i know i was like yeah yeah, yeah. 
but it's it's been good. I I I missed Mex- good Mexican food <laughs> per usual. Um and I I don't know if I mentioned this, but I applied for a, a advanced parole in April. So I'm still waiting to hear back from that. They definitely took my money. So I hope that's a, a good sign. Well, that's always the first thing that they do, right? Yeah. Siempre, siempre money first. They charge you first and then they reject you or accept you like later. And in su tiempo, right? Whenever they want to. Yeah. But it's super exciting. Like, um, are you fully vaccinated now? Yeah. So, oh my gosh, I got vaccinated. My second dose on May 11th. So, as soon as I got back from the Virgin Islands, I went to do that. And then I basically was like super tired, super sin ganas, desganada. And I was like literally in, I was working, but, you know, este, descansando. I was dragging my feet it was like the first day was fine I think it I think I woke up the next morning around 7 a.m because my arm hurt my arm hurt and that woke me up and I was like oh this is not good and then that whole day I was just I felt really como como si tuviera la flu gripa no sé como que this me dolía la espalda but then thereafter, I was like, this is not like me. Like, I'm usually tired, but no see. Yeah, I had the second dose. I had like a, a fever. Um, my my whistles like Cynthia, like the like, you know, like when you're when your bones hurt, but it's like a lower back, too. And you're just like starting to get chills. Um, but it just happened for like a day and a half. Um, and then it was done. Like I took once I took ibuprofen, I think I was like, good for like the day but you had to like retake it at the same exact like you know how you you have to take it like twice a day or something like that like unless you take it like there then that's when I started feeling it but yeah I haven't been sick for almost a year and a half so it's been really cool yeah me too too. that's one of the benefits of working from home and wearing masks and just like um the minor interactions with folks who are like sick around you so it's nice and I I wish that more people had this you know opportunity to do the same and um hopefully within the next few months we'll see what ends up happening with this whole repopulation but orientation kicked my butt already with transfers and we're about to start with the frosh next month so again it's going to be very very packed busy uh that's what happens I mean like when when people start knowing how you do your work and <laughs> like your style, they start now asking and requesting that they meet with you. And I'm trying to push more students to, you know, get to know more people too. That way yeah. they're not relying on just one person alone. Um, but I hope that everybody enjoys this upcoming episode and we'll introduce our next guest. And it's my pleasure to introduce our next guest, uh, Dr. Lina Mendez, or pronouns are she and her. Um, her position is currently Associate Director for the UC Davis at uh, Chicanx Latinx uh, Academic Success, Academic Student Success Center. And um, Dr. Lina Mendez is a first-generation Chicana who's passionate about teaching and mentoring. In 1999, she became a Gates Millennium Scholar, which enabled her to attend Harvard University for her master's degree and later on UC Davis for, for, for her PhD. Dr. Lina has committed her career to open, door, uh, open doors for students, the next generation of professionals. 
Her work revolves around building bridges through meaningful partnerships because of her lived experiences. Lena sees her work through a social justice lens, which allows her to build rapport and trust. She has held leadership roles in the Latinx Staff and Faculty Association, the Staff Diversity Administrative Advisory Committee, and the UC Davis Chicanx Latinx Alumni Association. In each of these roles, she has fostered a sense of belonging. Currently, she works at, at UC Davis as the, at the Center for Chicanx and Latinx Academic Student Success. And it's my pleasure to introduce you, Lina. Welcome. Thank you. So can you tell our audience a little bit about how we met and um, you know anything that you want to share? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I have to say that the very first time I saw you and read anything about you, it was on LinkedIn. So I have to say that social media is great for networking and for meeting new people. And I was immediately kind of, you know, aligned with you one because you were Chicana Latina. The other one was that you were at Harvard. And then eventually I saw that you were coming to Davis. So I was like, I feel like I know everyone at Davis. Um, and I was like, how come I don't know her? So I reached out and I said, let's meet. Uh, and I was really, really happy to actually get to know you better and that you were responsive. And it just happened to be that you had just started working at UC Davis. So it was a really nice introduction. Yeah, thank you, Lena, for reaching out and for welcoming me. Uh, it was definitely, you're a friendly face at UC Davis outside of work, you know, outside of my role um, and someone definitely who is very, um, caring and also wants to make sure that I have the resources and that I'm tapped into different opportunities to to support the students at UC Davis and through you now I'm part of the Hispanic Serving Institution Committee for UC Davis which is really interesting to be a part of. Yeah it's you know one of the things that I love about having Chicanx Latinx staff on any campus is the fact that we do this work because we care deeply about our communities. We care deeply about opening doors for other people, just like many others open them for us. And it is so rewarding to work with students. And they're young, they're innovative, they're creative, they're dreamers, right? They're hopeful, they wanna change the world and they haven't become cynical yet about the systems, about the world and they believe it can happen. And I love that about um, higher education. I also have to say that unfortunately, because higher education really wasn't meant for us, there's not, enough, there's not enough of us in leadership roles where we can make a difference to change campus climate and to change campus culture. So unfortunately, so many of us are constantly having to give everything we have and beyond until we get burned out and then we leave. Um, and for me, it's super important that we help retain people, not only because, you know, sometimes, you know, they, they try to get us with like, well, we have good benefits, we have a retirement plan, and it's true, and all those things are true, but those are not the only reasons why we work in these spaces. We work here because we want to change people's lives, and I wish that the institution would see that, that for us as a culture, it's always been about helping others. It's not just about us. And um, so anytime I have an opportunity to meet a new person on campus, I always wanna connect them to the right listservs, tell them about all the wonderful things that we're doing, but also give them a reality check. Uh, 
of where we are and to be candid. And I believe that that is one of the things, um, you know, someone with a PhD, it's we're taught to be critical thinkers. We're, we're taught to examine literature, to critique literature, to question it, to think about different ways that we could do things. And as higher in institutions, I believe it is our job to, to make things better for others and that, you know, we should be producing the kind of situations and atmospheres and climates that we so, you know, research and that we so much believe that, you know, can make better places to work, better places to live and better places to learn. Most definitely, Lena. And I feel like you, you definitely, in the short time that I've known you, I, I feel like you exemplify that. You take people under your wing, you know, and, um, and even in your, in, you know, you participating in these different workshops to share your story, like that's definitely another way to give back to the community, to share your story, to inspire others. Um, and I think that's wonderful. You do that and your job, right? And take care of your, your family as well. So that's, you know, you go above and beyond to, to give back and to help the community. And, and um, you know, I, I, I appreciate that as a, you know, up and coming person here trying to get her PhD as well. It's definitely um, something that I admire and something that I hope that I can, you know, also do for others. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, and I think it just reminds me right when you just said like how students really encourage, you know, fuel our fire and our passion. I mean, it's the most beautiful moment is when students are like get the first admission in undergrad and they have all these dreams, hopes. They really are optimistic of all the changes that could happen and take place. And the further along you get into, you know, your journey, the more you're figuring out, oh, here's the roadblocks that end up happening. And it's, it's not always greener on the other side. You know, we always have this dream. And I think this is something that I'm trying to work on, you know, how to better manage the space, right? So if I'm constantly thinking that the better place is in the next thing and the next move and the next stage of my life and the next title, um, you know, like when we always think, oh, well, an undergrad, well, I'm going to choose a better grad program. Well, at the grad program, I'm going to be like, well, once I have a full-time job, it's going to be better. Once I've, you know, I retire, it's going to be better. But somehow at this stage that I'm in my life, I'm like, I'm thinking about all the future and the advice and, you know, um, testimonials that people have talked about throughout every single field. I mean, even in our own podcast, having so many different guests talking about their own personal hardships, about every roadblock that they have had in every stage. Um, and it, it just comes to think like, there's no workshop, no training that can help you overcome oppression that is not your responsibility to solve because again you're the one who is being marginalized not causing the marginalization and that in the specific you know experiences that we're talking about and just recently Ariana had just shared with me this NPR article and it all relates back I feel like life is kind of putting like it's, it's all aligning all these conversations that we're Kind of feeling, especially now that we're like we're virtually working and working from home, and kind of reflecting a lot about what the hell are we doing, you know, like and really what is at the core the the very big disparities and and disconnections that we have 
from top admin in any industry and really what is happening, the, uh, the people that kind of like what students are experiencing in this time and how those are things are not aligning. We say we want to support people, but at the same time, we're policing them in every stage of the way of what they need to do and how they need to do it and in the way that they want it to be done. Um, and this NPR, the, the article that I'm referencing is how to survive in a, how to survive in a mostly white workplace, tips for marginalized employees, a life kit. And most of the tips have been come to, well, you need all these things that people of color need to do in order to not get oppressed. As a, and it was, my assumption is from the two writers, it was by two women of color. Um, I could also be wrong, but it, you know, like the, what does the implication of those things have in terms of retaining staff and faculty of color in specifically academia? Yeah, Patricia, I think what you brought up is so interesting and important. And I have to, to, to really say this, that the more we read people of color work, like written work, the more we realize that these things have happened for centuries, that it's nothing new, and that at some point we have to realize what matters to me? What are my values? What do I have control over? And then we decide, and this is something that has really helped me, how much energy do I really wanna put into this? Right? And sometimes there are times that we just feel so passionate about something and we're like, nope, we are gonna go at this, right? We're gonna make this better, we're gonna change this. And it comes at a cost. It comes at a cost to our health. It comes at a cost with our families. It comes at a cost with our marriages, if people are married. It comes at a cost with us being uh, caregivers to our elders. And, you know, I, I strongly believe that there's, there's a reason why we're all connected. And it's because we need each other. And when one person is on their low times, another person could be at their high and we can help each other to really kind of help each other, you know, carry through. And I think that's one thing I love about Latinos is this whole concept of acompañarnos and that it means something to us. And when we think about like, even when people used to cross the border, even if they didn't know each other, it was el estar acompañándonos, el estar like telling each other, you know, we're gonna get there, keep going, right? And encouraging one another. Uh, and I think it's the same way with education and higher education, we tell each other, you know, keep going to school, you know, this is going to open up other, you know, doors. And, and I strongly believe it is one way for social mobility and education, absolutely. It is one of the ways, it's not the only way. I've totally seen people be successful without a college education. I've seen people be successful with monolingual Spanish only, you know, and time and place happens to all of us. But what I also want to say is that I recently um, also read somewhere about how so often, for example, there are these big companies that are, um, you know, really looking for diversity and they come up with a statement that doesn't align with our values. And we're seeing this whole culture of saying we're boycotting those items, right? This whole cancel culture. And what we are finding is that sometimes companies like the employees within those companies don't feel like they have a lot of power because of their current situation. However, us as a society do. And I believe it's the same thing with education. You know, that I strongly believe that 
we can make the greatest change when we're within the institution. However, we also need people on the outside who, that can put pressure in the institution from a different angle, AKA donors who make donations. And again, thinking about the consumers, who are the consumers? And at what point do we decide to, to take a stand? At what point as individuals and you know, within the institution or outside the institution, do we decide to take a stand to continue to collaborate with people? So I, I just think that for all of us, it's so important to do self-care and whatever that means for us. If that means, you know, taking one day off, using your sick leave more often, taking your vacation time, if it means sleeping in one day a week, whatever that means to us, it is so important that we find that so that we can continue giving, you know, because if not, there's always all this taking from us and we don't refill. And we're just like our phones, right? When we go to that 10% warning, then it's like 5% and then it dies. And that's where we're at so often instead of that 100%. And for me, that 100% is when you're surrounded by good people. Good people who are honest, who, are, who want the best for you, you know, good people who want to change the world and who want to make things better. So that's kind of what I want to say uh, about that. And so many, uh, so often, especially the way that the workplace is set up and how much advice we get from other professionals about, you know, how much you're supposed to be silent, how much you're supposed to, you know, say just because there's so many like games, you know, and, and rules to the game, that sometimes the game plays you. Right. And so it's really interesting um, just how often HR in general does not is not conducive to a healthy conversation. I can't just straight up say to my supervisor, hey, let me be honest, you know, without fearing that maybe, you know, there's a there's a retaliation in that space. Right. And and that's the part where um, more than often it's just like we're just playing obedience into what the supervisor is supposed to tell us as opposed to authentically feel okay with people handling criticism. And I think this is why, you know, it goes back to, for me, a lot of like how we are raising kids, how we are raising children to be obedient as opposed to allowing them to give us feedback and know how to take feedback. A lot of supervisors from my experience don't know how to take feedback without having their egos hurt. And it's like, how can we move forward if all we're doing is just be yes people? You know, how can we move forward if we don't have a healthy um, clash or healthy, um, how do you say it? Like when we're in conflict, if we don't know how to have healthy conflict, take feedback, acknowledge, you know, when you hurt people and understand how to apologize, then we can never move forward with those people. It's like we can move on and heal and learn all the healthy boundaries and all these things. But ultimately, again, if we as a whole society in higher ed is not conducive to that place and other, you know, workplaces and fields. I mean, again, speaking back to it's not always greener on the other side, right? There's always problems with nonprofits. There's always problems with, you know, having to work for yourself as an entrepreneur, like every single thing. So it's like, ultimately, you know, even living in the country doesn't work because you still owe taxes in the U.S. Like you can't escape anywhere without having the U.S. influence you 
in one way or another, because for most of us who have been second, third generation immigrants or immigrants ourselves, going back to, you know, our home country doesn't also solve it either. So, you know, it's all about how to address how you're mentioning what is immediately in front of us and figuring out at the end of the day, if I make a decision, can I sleep at night? Can I be okay with this decision? And can I move forward without having that person move forward with me? Yeah. Ultimately, that's kind of the lessons that I've seen so far. You know, Patricia, I appreciate you saying that because one of my experiences, and I've been in higher education now for over 20 years. And one of my experiences is that sometimes people, you know, climb that ladder because that's the next natural step. But honestly, they don't want to supervise. They want to make more money or get a different title, but they don't want to supervise. And they're not good supervisors. Uh, The other thing I've also seen is people who have been oppressed or who have been mismanaged at some point have two options. Is one, you know, they continue to perpetuate that. So the opportunity they have to do it to others, they will. And that is, you know, also in the literature in terms of hegemony and oppression, right? When someone rises to power, then they continue to do it. The other option is that they can decide it stops here with me. You know, I was treated this way and I'm not going to treat others. And I hope that many of us can see those lessons and learn them. Because unfortunately, if we don't, and if institutions don't hold people accountable, we will continue to see this mass exodus of people of color from higher institute from higher education in general and i don't think that higher institutions like to think of it that way but if you were to think maybe even the past 3 years of people that you personally know that are people of color at your institution think about the people that are no longer here Think about the people that are no longer in the units that they used to work with. Sometimes they're still on campus, but they're in a different unit. And if you were to track those people, create an Excel sheet, talk about when did they move? Where did they move to? When did they leave the university? You don't even have to put reasons, right? Just a simple fact that we're disappearing and that there are numbers and that we can show that to HR. And obviously there's tons of people we don't know that also leave that we have no idea, but just the people that we know. And that to me is something that institutions should be ashamed of because here they are, right? Telling us, get an education, you're gonna change your life. And when we finally get these jobs and we feel so good to have health insurance, um, to have health insurance, it's, uh, it ends up being places that don't really help us to feel better uh, about ourselves or about our work. And eventually it starts getting really personal, right? So eventually we start feeling like maybe, you know, and there's a term for it, gaslighting, right? They start gaslighting us and we start feeling like, well, maybe it's me, right? And instead of really thinking, how could things be different? You know, and I hate it. I hate it when people in higher education say, well, that's the way things are. That's the way they've always been. And I'm like, but just because they've been that way doesn't mean they should be. And also the fact that we're changing as a society so much. And if 
as institutions of higher education, if we're not changing fast enough, then we need to like get on it because we're going to continue to lose good people. We're going to continue to lose a lot of the greatness that we have, right? In terms of the talent that we have and the, and the fact that so many faculty and staff of color have mentioned that we have great talent on the actual campuses that we work on, but we hire third parties and we hire all these guest speakers to tell us the exact same things that we could have done and tell them for free. And I oftentimes, like I went to this um, event again, um, out of my part of my own time and then part of it, it was work time where uh, we had Dr. Gloria Lanson Billings and uh, Dr. Um, um, Jonathan Rosa come in and talk about critical race theory and also um, linguistic and systemic oppression on campus, right? We had an amazing discussion. Honestly, I just go to these events just to remind myself that hope can be restored and that there's some people out there, even if there's just one person who thinks the way that I think to make me understand that it's like, it's a validating experience and also give you a little bit more perspective of you know, different disciplines because Dr. Jonathan Rosa is in Stanford and talked a lot about linguistics and, and how we oppress also students who are not monolingual. And the thing that stuck out to me was that um, Dr. Jonathan was talking about how we think that speaking just one language is the norm in the U.S. And in fact, it's really not. Everywhere else in the world is multilingual and we have failed to you know, incorporate people who speak more than one language. And depending on what that language is also, there's this hierarchies. And the fact that often we just think that just because the U.S. does things in this way, that that is okay and that we should accept oppression in this way. Knowing that, again, we could drastically change the way HR, you know, functions. We can drastically change the way that we teach students. The fact that these degree requirements are so outdated and so backwards that we're not actually teaching anything other than, again, obedience, repetition, memorization, and be a robot. You know, essentially, this is what capitalism is teaching students is to think that that is okay and that I should just continue on and rise and grind. And that if you're not following the mold, then, you know, you're a loser or, you know, that you're just not intelligent. Knowing that we exclude so many people that not only can think very differently, can do things differently and can do collaboration. You know, what makes us think that we're so better into thinking that, oh, I can do, I'm the only one who can speak on this. Um, and, and not to mention like, not, in, in, not in, in conversation about who can keep what kind of research, but it's also like, how can you be authentically yourself speak on things that you should be speaking about? Because again, that is your experience or that is the kind of research you want to and that it acknowledges and benefits the people that you're researching and the people that you're supposed to be helping, right? Like none of this is collaboration. Everything is made so like only you are the one that's highlighted and then you move on. And then the fact that, you know, even Dr. Gloria and Dr. John, uh, Jonathan end up probably not being acknowledged in their own institutions where they come from. And then they go to the other ones and then everybody's like, oh, we love you. You're like, you should, I mean, we wish we, there was more like you. But again, the system is made so all of us are scattered around every single university where we're not able to be all great in one department or at least in one university to make these changes happen, right? Can you speak on that? Because it looks like you have a couple of thoughts. Patricia, I have to say that I love Gloria Latin-Billing. I've been, you know, citing her for 
over a decade and I love her work and what she produces. Um, I, I, at one point I thought just like you, like I wish like all these good, you know, thinkers, authors, professors could be in one institution and we could all be together. However, you know, I have to say, and being from Idaho, right? I'm from Idaho, that these white spaces that have very few of any of us underrepresented minorities in them, that we need people so bad to be able to look like us, to be able to support us, for, to, for them to give us hope. What I have to say is that we do, you know, uh, a lot of the things that we do are shaped by our lived experiences. And at some point in our lives, we have to think, what if I applied for my dream job? What would that dream job be? And why? Why do I want that dream job? And we need to go for it. And we need to find mentors that support us, that believe in us. I um, attended a training last year. And one of the things they said was, you need to create your own board of advisors. And either you ask them, you know, to be your formal board of advisors, or you just know it in your head. Like, who are my board of advisors? Who do you go to for advice with this? Who do you go to for advice for that? And that is the beauty of being able to have, you know, other Chicana Latinas who have your back, who want the very best for you, just like they want for themselves. And that really true partnerships and true collaborations is about a give and take. And it's never just about taking from other people. Um, so I just have to say that <clears throat> we do have the power to, to change things for ourselves and for others. And I'm so encouraged by um, the fact that even Cornell West just recently, right? That Harvard didn't give him tenure and the rest of the country were like, what? And it's also a signal, right? It's, it's signaling to us if he can't get it, then who? If he can't get it, how am I going to get it? And I wrote a piece on actually Chicana Latinos, Chicano Latinos getting tenure and the process being so, it's really not transparent and it's so subjective and it's so different. And, you know, I, there's two other collaborators on this project. And I remember some of the interviews, faculty saying, <clears throat> I asked white colleagues, how many publications do you have to have in order to get tenure? And some of them would say two or three a year. And she's like, okay, I'm gonna produce five or six every year so that I'm really above it. And you know, this person almost killed herself working, right? And you know, every presentation she would do as a conference, she said she got to the point where she was like, I wouldn't present unless I was going to publish that paper. So really, she really kind of said, this is it, right? And when she came up for tenure, do you know what the institution told her? You know, she came through and then she said, you know, I have all these other publications way above everyone else. I'm for sure going to get it. And you know what they told her? They said, oh, but this is, you know, this is your normal. This is what you normally produce. And it was such a slap in the face to her because she said, you know, I've worked so hard for this. And then they didn't even celebrate her they didn't even like throw her a party and she got so upset and she said you know it wasn't about the party like you know but it's a fact that they don't think of us as being deserving of that party so I just want to say that being able to to listen to people's authentic stories 
and their experiences in these place, spaces helps us to think, you know, if they can't do it and they're so marvelous in our eyes, then how can we? But I just have to say that that's exactly why we have to continue to break these barriers. We have to continue to work in every single stage of these institutions um, so that we can help each other kind of move forward. Yeah, and the best way to move forward in that, especially knowing how exceptionally hard it is to, you know, the validation again will not come from these institutions. The validation will not come from your review party or your review board or whatever the case. They always see us as unhuman, like not human enough. So therefore we have to always be the exceptional superhero. And even then it's not good enough. So I, like any of the best advice that I had seen in, in uh, with other critical race theory scholars was do whatever makes you feel joy. And at the end of the day, I did everything and, I, and, I, and it gave me so much peace because they said, I did everything that you shouldn't have done and everything that they said, don't do. And guess what? Now I'm an admin. So what? You know, like, and, and that is just the most powerful thing ever. Whenever people are criminalized, demonized, as like, that's not what you should do. It's like, hmm, maybe if I did it, you know, like, and I genuinely aligns with my, my soul and goals, because so often we, we focus so much on the haters that we're like, oh, you know, the saying haters are my motivators, but I'm like, but then if those haters didn't exist, what do you have for yourself? You know, it, you have to have more than just, I want to prove people things. It's more of like, do you want to do these things if you didn't have any of those things happening with you? And I mean, it, it's just like hearing these stories from like not only Dr. Cornell West, but other, you know, ex exceptional faculty of color that have been denied and even staff of color too, who have been denied other, you know, positions, especially when it comes to, you know, once you get up in the management position, again, what are you going to do besides, you know, having an academic as your own personality, right? Like you need to have more than just that network of people that can help you just survive, but also, you know, generally feel human and validated in, in, in what you're feeling. Because again, so much of us, it's this fear of us being so emotional, uh, of being able to connect emotionally with other people, um, that, that in general, what they're going to do is dehumanize and turn you into a robot. And even robots now have feelings, you know, like, so again, we have to really reflect and think at the end of the day, if today was my last day, is this how I want it to end? You know, because think about it, then lifetime, I always think about it in the grand scheme of things. If I was to look at the mini documentary of my life and revisit my whole thing, is that generally authentically what I had wanted for myself? If tenure wasn't the thing that I was chasing after, you know, would it be, would I be okay with that? You know? those big, big higher questions <laughs> for all of us to kind of reflect on. Yeah, it's um, one of the things that I usually like to share is that for me, higher education has not been a linear process. I, I do have my PhD. All three of my degrees are in education, bilingual education for my undergrad, language and literacy for my master's, educational policy for my PhD. And I've worked in education ever since. <laughs> I started, you know, as an undergrad. Um, and it's, it always has these 
liberating moments and it always has these oppressive moments that that we go through and at the end of the day for me it has always been about how many doors have i opened for others to come through how many people have i mentored how many have totally surpassed me they get paid way better than i do they have higher titles than i do they're doing amazing work all over the country and it brings fulfillment to me to see that we are preparing the next generation of professionals and that we played a role in their lives. And sometimes, you know, people are in our lives and they're always going to be there. Like they are like, you know, our lifelong mentors, friends, colleagues. And then sometimes people are just there for a chapter of our life. And, and not to say that anything bad has happened, right? Like they're just there for that chapter and then they move on or you move on, or, you know, you just kind of come apart. And again, it kind of comes down to, for me, it's how am I helping others to kind of get through? How am I opening these doors? And sometimes I do take hits, you know, and, and it's hurtful and it's hard. And I have to remember my why. And is that why still enough? Or is that why going to move me to say, I am done with this stage in higher education and now I'm moving to industry? I am done with this stage of higher education and now I'm going to focus on my family. And all of these things are easy to say when things either don't go well in our current positions or when they are going well. But what happens when health hits us, right? And we get diagnosed with, with a disease that we were not expecting. What happens with one of our family members is diagnosed? What, what happens when one of our family members dies, right? And all of a sudden, all your priorities change. And it's the same when you have a child. I, once you have your firstborn, it's like, I remember thinking, I don't know that I really want to finish this PhD thing anymore. <laughs> you know, this baby's so cute. I could just hold her all day, every day. And it's, um, it's different, right? Your priorities just change and it's really our mentality. And I wish that as people, we would have these life coaches around us that could help us get unstuck, that, and, and honestly, it's not them helping us. We already know those answers. We're just too afraid to say them. We're too afraid to think them. We're too afraid to act upon them because we don't feel like our stars are going to align. But what if they did? What if you applied for that job and you interviewed and you got it and then you got another one and now you have options. Just like people who have options with their doctoral programs, right? And their master's and their undergrad is all of a sudden you get one up, you know, one admission, then two, and then three. And then you're like, oh, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And also trusting that whatever path it is, that that's where we're meant to be for that reason. And again, you, for me, it's super important to have agency. Like I want to have a say in things. You don't just get to come and tell me what I have to do. Like I want to have a say, ask me, you know, or let me tell you <laughs> what I think. And you know, then we kind of move forward. Definitely. You all have shared so many good points. Um, and as you were both talking, I, I remembered, you know, when we were working at Sonoma State and we saw people leaving Latinos. It's a Hispanic serving institution it had just become that. And then different people were leaving different administrative roles or as, you know, lower levels. And and even with Dr. Cornell West, he's an amazing individual that, 
was willing to write me a letter of rec. I think at one point I put on Facebook, like, I'm so glad that there's, you know, that there's faculty that get it. There are, there are some, I, I have something along, along those lines, but it was because I was, I had met with him and we were talking about PhD programs and the fact that I didn't have a lot of research. And he like reassured me that, isn't that the point? Isn't that why you're getting your PhD so you can get that research experience? And I'm like, yeah, as you get it. <laughs> but um, just like a really down to earth individual, always, you know, willing to take that extra time to meet with the students. Like he, you can see it in his, um, just in the way he speaks and the way he expresses himself. And it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, Harvard doesn't see that or recognize that or all of his publications are not enough, right? So um, it's, um, it's not surprising, but it's, you know, it's still like, it sucks. <laughs> And I think what I've, what I've read about his situation was that when they gave him that position of like, um, you know, his current position in the divinity school, it was like set so that he wouldn't get tenure. But like now that he's asking for it, they're not even considering it. But it seems like they're going back to that original offer. That well, I have, yeah, I have to say this. I, I, I love Cornell. He taught one of the classes that I was at when I was at Harvard. And I remember him walking down the street and one of our students was like, Dr. West. And he turned around and he walked up to us sitting down at the table and he shook everyone's hand. And he is just so humane, so caring, so loving. One of the things he said that he was quoted in that paper, and I think that this really helps all of us, is he said, but I wasn't raised to put up with being disrespected or tolerate disrespect. I don't try to negotiate respect. And that was so just amazing for me to, to hear and to read and imagining his voice saying it. And I thought, you know what? That's exactly where I'm at. You know, I don't try to negotiate respect. So earlier, Patricia, when you were talking about how some supervisors try to do all of these things, right, with people, it's, you know, it's that stand that we need to take. Like, I don't tolerate being disrespected. And right now I feel disrespected when you do X, Y, Z. And I think it's so liberating even just to say it. And I know it's hard to say it to people that we're having a hard time with, you know, or that we don't see eye to eye. I know it's absolutely hard. And sometimes we shy away because of the conflict that it can create because of the situations that we're in. However, we need to understand that if we don't get away from those um, systems that are causing us harm, and, and to be honest with you, sometimes we're also causing them harm, right? Because it goes kind of both ways, like none of us really enjoy being in each other's company. And it's better to just part ways. And it's, um, it's important for us to know that we bring certain skills, just like you talked about, Ariana that yes, you don't know how to do your research yet, but that's why you're getting into a program and that's what they're supposed to teach you. So it's the fact that doors will open and doors will close for us for a reason. Yeah, and it also reminds me, you know, um, I've shared with you that I got into UC Riverside and USC, I got waitlisted and I was thinking, you know, I obviously I'm looking for, and I shared this with Bati about, you know, getting the most funding from the, you know, I don't want to pay for my PhD. So I'm like focused on that. But um, 
what I what I've been reflecting on is the fact that I met with both faculty and one of them, the one at USC is a white woman who has written on graduate admissions. And the other one is uh, an Asian woman who um, is an assistant direct uh, assistant professor at UC Riverside. And the, the acceptance at UC Riverside um, came at me different because um, this faculty went out of her way to like talk to me, to answer any questions. She, She's like, but you know, it's up to you. I know you, you, you should go wherever you, you know, wherever that, that place is. And the faculty at USC, I sent her an email and I said, thank you for, you know, it's a pleasure meeting you and just know that I'm ready to provide you with more information, but, right? But basically this is all to say that to both ladies, I told them, this is my fourth time applying. This is the furthest I've gotten in the application process for PhD programs, the interview, right? And it was just interesting, like obviously they have different reasonings, but it, I feel like it, when you talk to someone who gets it, it, who shares a similar background, who knows the struggle, like they'll advocate for you or they'll, you know, that like this professor even said, like, um, she's like, I see potential in you. I see, you know, like just those, those words, like not everyone will, you know, say that. And, um, so yeah, so I, I guess I was just differentiating who hears when you're expressing, you know, a desire, right? And who sees it, who actually sees it versus who doesn't um, and where are they coming from? That's like definitely something to, I guess, just to, to your points is like, it matters to have, you know, faculty who are not only diverse, but also understand um, and want to lend a hand to your point about you're trying to help those upcoming professionals. You know, Ariana, I also have to say that when people are getting their PhDs, I always tell people, when you apply to a program, make sure you have like two or three faculty at that program, in that program, that are going to be able to be a good support system for you. Because honestly, faculty move all the time. And we know because of these institutions, how they are. So what you don't want to do is go there because of this one person and then they leave. And then what happens to you? And that happened to me. You know, my faculty ended up leaving to UCLA and she did really well there and she's really great and she was really great. However, I needed someone to be there with me at UC Davis. So I had to change to a different advisor. But one of the things you mentioned, Ariana, was someone telling you, I see potential in you. And I, that's a one thing I love about working with students is that I can see what they can't see yet. And I can help them believe that they can be where they wanna be. And it's, uh, to me, that's one of like the most rewarding parts. And I think for all of us, especially when we're not feeling, uh, you know, supported within our spaces and or valued or appreciated is to get this from an external validation. Like I was recently uh, invited to speak at the University of California's President's um, Advisory Women's Committee at UCOP. And I was just so elated that they even nominated me to, to be a speaker. And I was so excited, I put it on my Facebook and I said, I'm gonna make an announcement soon. And people were all of, a, all of a sudden like, did you get a job? Are you moving? Are you gonna have a baby, right? Like all these different questions. But honestly, it really made my week. And 
And it made me, it just reminded me of like, there is something special inside of me that when in your current situation, you don't see it because people don't value you or you don't feel valued, or even when you do feel valued, right? It's like you're taking hits all the time is to be able to say, I'm going to put out into the world something positive and I'm going to spread the love and I'm going to give of myself because we know that it makes a difference for others. And the fact that a lot of the spaces will make you believe, you know, especially the doubts and the fears you may have already had subconsciously. Cause again, we're, we're, some of the voices are ours. Others are other people's voices that we've kept hearing. So I just find it um, kind of heartbreaking that, you know, like how often times we have students and people in our lives that are, you know, really giving into that voices, that those negative, fearful, very hesitant, you know, voices of what we, you know, are very much capable of. I think we are very, all of us are very much capable of doing so many great things, given the right resources and time and mentorship, and even just the opportunity of just saying like, yes, let's get you on board. Let's put this opportunity on your table. Like, let's give each other awards for our own selves. I mean, how many of this is really fabricated and created by like, by people, you know, we create opportunities as much as we create rejections, you know, and, and the fact that a lot of people through COVID through this application graduate application process have been so disheartened by the, the results because of how funding has worked. I mean, anybody who's doing the application cycle at this time has had not so many great, you know, acceptances or at least the funding that they were looking for. Um, and ultimately, I mean, that how, that's how the economy has lent itself to be very much scarcity, you know, mindset, scarcity opportunities to the point that we start to believe that, you know, it's our, or the lack of skills that we have, or the lack of, you know, things that we may not have, but in, in actuality is universities right now are gearing more and more towards, we're just going to admit the people who have enough of the resources where we don't need to actually pour into them to the point that it's like, unless you have all these things aligned, unless you have all these skill sets that we're looking at, who in, in actuality, while at the simultaneously institutions calling out anti-racism and anti-Blackness, right? So it, it's like those two things cannot happen at the same time, you know, and for us to realize that and to think about, you know, how are we gonna navigate this job market, right? How are we gonna navigate this academic spaces where, you know, that's the reality of leadership, reducing and reducing those things that actually help people um, just get through. Yeah, I have to say, Patti, that first of all, I just want to tell all of our listeners out there, if you're applying to a master's program, just know that that, that is where institutions make their money because they charge you graduate tuition fee, which is double or triple what undergrads pay. And they don't give you funding. So funding, even for general scholarships, you know, to pay for masters, it's kind of unheard of. They're more likely to, to offer them to undergrads or doctoral students. And I just wanna say for my doctoral PhD students is that you have to always be applying for fellowships, you know, um, different scholarships, different awards, different uh, opportunities and look internally within your institution utilize your graduate studies office. They know about funding. 
utilize your systems. Like for example, the universities of California, we have a system. Back in the day, we used to have UC Accord that used to pay for your dissertation. We have a UC presidential, um, you know, dissertation award. We have a chancellor's dissertation award. There's all these different uh, awards that happen that you need to tap into. The other part is that you need to be able to use your networks. I can't tell you how many times there are programs uh, that don't have doctoral programs. For example, at our school, uh, communication is not a PhD program. So they don't have PhD students. So if they need TAs for those large undergrad classes in education, they need to be able to get them from other departments. So keep your eyes open for that. Network around, um, be friends with people, especially office coordinators who get to sometimes make these decisions in terms of who becomes a reader, who becomes a TA, um, you know, and they can promote research assistance. And that's why knowing people is so important so that they can recommend you and they can be your sponsors. I don't think that we often think about sponsors in a way that is different than mentors. And there is a distinction between them. So I hope that for our listeners out there that they're able to find good mentors and good sponsors to help them get through that journey. And Lena, um, can you um, can you share a little bit about, since we're talking about scholarships, um, what can you share with us what the Gates Millennial Scholarship is, Millennium Scholarship, and um, how did, what ways did it impact your academic journey? Thank you so much for asking this question. <clears throat> so in 1999, Bill and Melinda Gates decided to give a billion dollars in scholarships for 20 years for underrepresented minorities that were focusing in five fields. Education happened to be one of them, but it was really library science, math, engineering sciences. And I was lucky that I was in education. So you had to be nominated by someone, you had to, to apply, you had to have a high GPA, you had to have leadership experience. So it was really selective, really rigorous. And the first year they opened it up to everybody, high school and college students. And I was a junior in college at that time. And I was one of the recipients. Well, let me tell you, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation received 64,000, 64,000 applications. What I heard was them saying they had no idea that there were that many qualified people that would apply for those scholarships. So the year after that first year, so I was fortunate enough to get it that first year. The year after that, and for the remainder of the term of that scholarship, they only opened it up to high school students. So only high school students could apply. So everyone else in, in college could not. This scholarship would pay for all of your undergrad, all of your master's, and all of your PhD. And that not only included tuition, but including the cost of living, transportation, books, a computer. They would take us to this leadership conference. So when you were a recipient, you would go to the leadership conference, meet all these other students from all over the country that got accepted. And it was in one of the nicest hotels in LA. And it was just such a fabulous leadership experience. And they really did not hold back on money. I, I literally felt like I won the lottery. I was like, the sky's the limit. And for me at the time, I was at New Mexico State University uh, doing an exchange program. So I had gone from Boise State to New Mexico State just for a year to do this national student exchange program. 
And I got that scholarship and I ended up staying in New Mexico because it was so diverse. It was an HSI. I loved being there. I was in bilingual education. Their schools are bilingual. Like it was just fabulous. Um, and then after that, I remember calling the scholarship and saying, do I have to stay at my institution for my master's? And they said, no, you can go anywhere you want. And I, I said, even Harvard? And they said, if you can get in. And honestly, I didn't even know where Harvard was. I didn't even know what state, much less what city it was in. But I was going to apply, you know. And I remember applying. And I also applied to UMass Boston because I really wanted to go to UMass Boston and work with Donaldo Macedo. And when I got accepted to both, I had a really, really hard time deciding where did I want to go. And one of the things that really helped me was that Donaldo said, Lina, go to Harvard and you can always come to my office hours. So I would hop on the train 45 minutes and go see him about once a month. And he and him and his wife, Lilia Bartolome, really mentored me and helped me while I was at Harvard because it was really, really hard. And after Harvard, I remember being so burned out that I just worked. I said, I'm just gonna work. I'm never gonna read another book again. I don't wanna go to school. Like I'm done, this is it. You know, I gave it all I had. And at the end, I was so proud of myself. I'm like, I'm glad it's over. I'm so glad I have a degree. But then there was also this shame, this embarrassment of having to tell people that I went to Harvard because I thought they expected me to be perfect, to write perfect, to speak perfect. And that wasn't me. So for a long time, I wouldn't tell people that I went to Harvard and other people would make a big deal like, oh my gosh, you went to Harvard, how amazing. But there was internally this shame because I, I know that my experience there was not one where I felt like I belonged, even though there were plenty of other Chicano Latinos in my master's program in education. And we would you know, get together and really support one another, but it was really difficult. Uh, so I just wanna say that after a year, I was like, okay, I think I'm ready. And I was recruited to apply to UC Davis and come and work with Patricia Gandara. And she was my faculty mentor and she was really the reason I came to UC Davis and so instrumental in my life really changing. And I'm so thankful for um, that opportunity and just all of my different colleagues. But had I not thought about at some point thinking I need to get more work experience. You know, I'm really young. I think I was 23 when I started my PhD. And I remember thinking, I'm really young. Everyone else knows more. They're better writers. They're better thinkers. They have work experience. And I really don't. So what am I going to bring? And, you know, I had to, like, kind of check myself and think, Lena, what other Chicana Latina would love to get their PhD paid for? Are you really gonna give up this opportunity? Because the Gates Millennium Scholarship allows you to take one year off. And after that, that's it. Like you lose it. If you don't go back to school, you lose it. And I was like, oh, but I could apply for scholarships. But let me tell you, they have the easiest renewal. You just have to sign a paper, send it in and they send money to your school. It's like the easiest thing ever. Like once you get it, you get it. And I was just like, Lena, don't give up this opportunity. And I just had to apply and I just had to go for it. And even though I didn't feel prepared, 
even though I was all over the map thinking, I want to study bilingual education, I want to study migrant education, I want to study higher education. I didn't even know, <laughs> you know, but having support, having someone who, who could walk with you, get that compañera. And not that it was easy. Like I remember her giving me some really good constructive critical feedback in my writing um, and how much I needed to push more. And that work-life balance was um, just really instrumental. And the fact that a lot of these lessons, right, you carry over in your job anyway, right? Because it, it doesn't stop. And I think this is a this is something I, I've started to realize now as being full-timer, like the procrastination, the lack of motivation. How do you, you know, deal with, you know, times where you feel this doubt coming into you? It all shows up and it never ends, you know, like it, it's, it's, if you haven't had a strong foundation before, if you haven't worked on, you know, how will this translate to the next phase? It'll continuously be in the back of your subconscious and still, you know, show up in times that it's like, did you learn this lesson? You have it, okay, pues aquí está otra vez, you know, in case, you know, and, and it doesn't end, especially, it, it, it amplifies for sure that the bigger roles that you, you know, feel or the perception of the task that you're going to do, but in any small little task, like if you haven't dealt with, you know, that doubt that, the doubt that you had, or can you do it, am I going to be a good writer, if it's not, am I going to be a good writer, it's like, is it, am I going to manage these things right, if I'm going to, you know, present this paper, or present in this meeting, this big scary thing that, you know, is very close to my heart, but also kind of scared that it's going to be rejected, like any step of the way, it's going to show up somehow, regardless of what job you end up getting in, in life. Absolutely. And you know, the other thing I want to mention about that is the fact that I did have loans during my sophomore year in college, and also the last couple of years of my PhD. And here I am 10 years out, and I'm still paying back my loans. And that is one unfortunate thing about working in student affairs is that they don't pay <laughs> enough. And they definitely regardless if you have a PhD or not, is that, you know, we have to be so thoughtful of how do we use our money? How do we spend our money? How do we invest our money? And I don't think that we, well, I know for me as a first generation student, I didn't grow up with that thought. I grew up with the family that lived paycheck to paycheck. And for me as an undergrad, I would have to take out loans to help the family sometimes. I would have to take out loans to pay off bad decisions that my family members made. And here I am still paying them. So please kind of get advice with people, have people help you apply for scholarships. I can't tell you how many times students too choose not to apply because they don't have someone to write them a letter of recommendation. And how important it is that you have at least one person who can write you one. I just have a template. I keep it for students. I'm like, just ask me, I'll send you one. You know, just ask me, I'll write you a letter. I will write as many letters as I can for students to get money, even if it kills me. <laughs> It's like, I want students to not have to be in so much debt. And I want students to be able to have a fulfilling life. Definitely. I think my uncle as well, he's still paying his and it's like a never ending cycle. Um, he paid to get his master's and um, an undergrad as well because he was in this country by himself and his parents were back in Mexico and he had to figure it out. and. That's that option gave him money in that moment to pay for his studies. But then right now he's still paying them. Yeah. And I really hope that Biden comes through for all of us. 
and forgive some of our loans. And I also think that our federal financial aid needs to be re-looked at because we have families from mixed status. We have families with parents in other places. And so often they become barriers for us to, to have access to higher education. Yeah, and, and the fact that a lot of you know parents are also pressuring students to figure out financially, but then they're still mark dependent in their in their forms, and they still have to work on their own. So there has to be a better assessment and forms, or somewhere that along the application or renewal process that can you know catch those differences without having to the student have to be in an office that's extra not welcoming in the financial aid office. Um, just to, you know, mitigate those issues, just because again, it's not the, the financial aid application definitely needs to be um, updated. And also, you know, the California Dream Act should, it, they should just merge those two and just say like, because there's no reason why to have two different ones. When all this information, the IRS knows, you know, uh, for the most part, you know, they, they know what what is going on. So it's just one roadblock extra for students and, and for students to also learn how to advocate, right? Like how can we build, you know, just the way that our parents also, you know, push us to have all this independence and be adults. You can also push your family members to like, okay, I, I have to say no to this. You know, um, I have to say no to giving out money, but I can help you look for things, you know, like, and, and it's just like, how do you negotiate even within your own families, the things that you have to say yes or no to. Because again, think about the long-term things of the effect that it will have in your life. And the fact that I, I just want to push people to think like, you're not in this world to fulfill all of your parents' dreams, you know, and this is not the burden you have to carry. Your parents are their own beings and they were alive before you were here. So you know, there's, there's no need to, you know, feel that you need to sacrifice. Like, I just want to end this whole feeling of needing to sacrifice each other, live our own best lives. Everyone, if we all put on our little, you know, granito de arena, like we can get through. Right. And it's, I just want people to stop having to put scholarships of my parents sacrifice this and my, I sacrifice this. And when is the sacrifice going to end? I just want us to just think about that. <laughs> One of the things you said, Patti, really resonated with me when, you know, there are times that I have students who say, I don't know that I can continue with school. I need to just get a job and help my family. And I, I help them reflect on that. I'm like, when you were in middle school and your parents had a financial issue, like, did they resolve it? And he was like, yeah. And I said, and they will resolve it now too, right? It, like there's always, we always find ways to kind of resolve you know, the issues that we go through. But I think so often us as Latinos or Latinas, we want to feel like we're needed and that we're making a difference. So ahí estamos como quien dice ofreciéndonos todo el tiempo, right? And we do this not only with our families, but we also do it with our jobs. I mean, no nos preguntan cuando yo lo hago. And you go the extra mile. Siempre estamos ofrecidas. That's what I always kind of like the joke, you know, of it. Um, the other part I want to touch on was something you, you said that really triggered a memory in me. And it's the fact that when we're the first generation to go on to higher education, we miss out on a lot of our family things. And there's a guilt that comes with it, regardless if you're close by your family or if you're far away. You know, we miss out on weddings, birthdays, seeing our little nephews and nieces grow up and then become older and also not having those relationships. You know, like they know you're, you're their tia or their cousin, 
but you're not as close anymore because now there's so much time and or your family not understanding that you're not coming for that quinceañera or that baptism because you have finals and you have midterms and you have to study and they want to understand and they push you to to study but then they also want you to do this and it's that you know like connection and how do you do that balance without sacrificing and then you get put on academic probation or you're subject to dismissal and now you feel really bad and you don't even want to tell your parents right and the shame that comes with it and then everything else that it's it could be a down downward spiral for you if you don't get the right support and the right mentoring and have the right people around you that are going to say sabes que that's totally okay plenty of other people are have been there too and we're going to still help you cross that stage and you're still going to graduate Yeah. And how oftentimes, like, you know, our own parents, you know, how we're always like, I need to show up for them. But also think about this is a balance within the relationship. I know that we have had this growing up this um, norm of we have to be available to them all the time. But how much are we also like, you know, how how you're saying, how does it translate to our own everyday relationships? Do we do the same thing in our work? The work doesn't show up like it has to be reciprocal. Um, just reflecting on my own life experience, like, you know, I'm expected to always show up for my parents all the time and deal with their own rejection or their own no, like I have to, you know, somehow make them feel happy about it. Right. And it's my responsibility for their emotions. Right. But how oftentimes did they just, you know, nos decepcionaron mucho, you know, with our own growing up and how did we feel with our emotions? You know, deception, you know, you know, negative emotions is part of life and that you are not, again, responsible for your parents' emotions, how they deal with it. You can also be an example of helping them go through the emotions. We have to acknowledge that your parents are adults and they have to be treated like so and not babies the way that maybe we wish we were babied or, you know, nurtured or I don't know what kind of word to use for that. But it's like, this is something we need to like, work on as a whole society like you know we are not made to we have to acknowledge our own autonomy our own agency and the fact that again sure we miss the quinceanera and all that stuff but at the end of the day what are we giving up that is not in alignment with our actual life goals because how much of it are we sacrificing that we're putting it on just to feel needed and validated, but how much are we really sacrificing our own dreams for something that, again, all of us need to, you know, carry on little weight on it and have a discussion and an honest discussion of what is the limit? How much are you able to negotiate and be there? Because part of it is important to acknowledge that, you know, our parents, depending on everyone's circumstance, they do need help. They do need these things, but there's also other people that you can ask for help. You are not the only one, not the glue that keeps everyone together. If you're not here today, they will have to find help somewhere else. And we need to start normalizing asking help, regardless yeah, yeah. of what the outcome or, or, you know, answer is. We need to ask for help. And only one person, it is unreasonable to put all the burden on that one person to always be there for us. And, and earlier, so, yeah. Yeah, earlier you said, you know, there has to be a word for it. And the word that came to mind is intergenerational healing. And Mm -hmm. healing has to happen. And we have to do the work. 
los, los mal acostumbramos. And I, I experienced it as well when I was um, living with my parents through college. And then it got to the point where it was too much, too much responsibility. Yo de buena gente, I'm like, hey, I'm here at the store. Si quieren, les ayudo con las compras. I'll go pick them up. But después se vuelve, you know, dependability. And um, it's hard to break it. And it's hard to to let it grow, get to that point because then they get hurt because you don't want to do it anymore. Or they get hurt because that you want to move away or, you know, and it's, and it, something else that I was reminded as you were talking about the, is that, um, that my parents never got, neither of them never got to live and take care of their parents um, after they were what, 23 years old. So they never got to spend time together with each other and going places together, but I have, and that's really hard because we're at different places. Like I'm, for example, if I'm traveling with them, it's really hard to travel with them because they're not used to travel. And I was thinking about that. I was like, what is going on here? And, I, and then I remember my, my parents, the, from the point that my parents left Mexico at 23 and 19, they stopped you know, engaging with their, their parents. They stopped for 20 years. So they don't, they don't know what that's like, that relationship at that point beyond when they were younger. So it was just, it's interesting to reflect and also to put those, you know, stops, right? Like, it's just like, oh no, that doesn't work anymore. Yes, I'm your child, but not, you know, we have to engage in a different way. And I love you saying that, Ariana, because that is one thing about our parents is that they did, they did the best they could with what they had. And when I think about my mom's experience, I don't know that I could have survived what she went through. I don't, I still don't know how she does it, you know, with the second grade education and no English and how she still gets her way and she still gets what she wants. And that, you know, it's, um, and she works really hard and she, she does what she can. And so to me, I think it's also about this remembrance of, what are the positive things in those relationships with our families that we choose to hold on to instead of the negative ones? And I want to touch on this because right now with sheltering in place with so many students having to go back home and having to study from home, you know, I have students telling me like their little siblings constantly interrupting them or them having to help the siblings or the parents expecting them to take care of the little ones or the parents not disciplining the little ones. And then them not feeling like they could discipline either. Um, or even the expectation of like, why are you studying so much? And it's like, well, I need to study this much. I'm taking a science class or a math or, you know, I need space, I need time. And to me, this time has really reminded me for all of us that we need to take care of our mental health. That our mental health is so much more important than our academics. You know, that we just have to do enough to pass and that it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this you know, and going outside and taking the sun, seeing the sun, feeling warm or windy or cold or wherever it is that people are at. It's that nature and God will always provide for us and how important it is for us to be in touch with that. Even to smell something, I grabbed some yerba buena yesterday and over my mask, I was like smelling it as I was walking. And it's just such a reminder that we need to stay grounded. 
Stay grounded and stay ready in that sense that, you know, like, you know, because that's the thing that we do, right? We, we either praise one person or one thing or one, one special circumstance in that way, but it's to take the fullness of the person, right? Like it's not, you know, my parents were this, put it on a pedestal and they were like the best, but it's also like acknowledging your own emotions and taking in that person as there is some great memories the middle kind of murky ones, mixed feelings ones. And then there's also the really, really bad moments that you have with those people. But I think that the, what's missing a lot of conversations when growing up is the fact that once you reach the adult stage, once you're in college specifically, once you become a professional working full time, it's a whole different ball game in the type of relationship that you have with your parents, with your family, in that as you evolve and you grow, and especially in institutions that are challenging you to speak up, that are challenging you to create your own thoughts, especially in the PhD, you need to create your own thoughts, you know, and what do you bring to the space? And family not understanding that we grew up and learned in a different way of communicating, that we are now accessing what intergenerational trauma is and the fact that we're now saying, ya basta con esto. You know, that we are, we're not, that's not how I have a relationship with you. And I, and, I, and that there's different connections that you have with them, that you get to learn more and more how Ariana, you're mentioning, like, I'm trying to reflect and see how my parents are thinking. And I hope that one day our parents also think of the way that we're thinking, like, where are we coming from as well? Because if we kind of put all these ge different generations in one space and kind of just try to understand each other you know, pull the best version of ourselves in there, then we can have it. But again, our reality is we can't have that expectation that our parents somehow have an epiphany and they're like, I will unconditionally love and understand you, <laughs> you know, because of their life experiences. I mean, we ha they haven't ever heard a younger person say no to them and hold them to it and tell them, hey, you hurt me because they didn't have that relationship with their own parents. They didn't have that opportunity to feel the, the value or the courage to say that to their face. And now they see it as a sign of disrespect when we do it and when we bring it up. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a work in progress, of course, all the time. But the more of us that kind of just, you know, again, I, I'm at this phase where I'm like, I'm trying to heal with or without them, you know, in this space. And that the fact that it's like, how do you then negotiate your, within yourself? What do you value within those relationships? Or what do you want to still keep true to yourself and what are the things that you're like the lejitos mejor you know <laughs> you know I, I don't need to interact as much I will interact with you in a specific time but not all the time because again we have to acknowledge our own truths our own needs and um, foster you know and connect with people that pour into ourselves and vice versa. I think that's something you said that's really good is the fact that we have people who take our energy and we have people that give us energy. And what I tell students is that it's okay to cut people off that don't help you be your best self. And even if some of those are family members, you know, it's like, I think we get to a point in our lives where we say, I don't need that. And I don't want that. I really want to surround my myself with people who are positive or who are encouragers or who um, align with my values too. So I hope that we can think of that as a way of healing. 
Definitely, Lena. Um, I, there's so much, so much healing to, to do and to address, and it's all going to just improve the next, you know, the next generation. And um, I think this is a, a great place to, to close off this, this conversation today. And I really want to just say thank you so much for your time and for your input and sharing tips and advice throughout our entire conversation and, feed, and giving us feedback on the different topics that we covered. You know, and, and thank you so much for sharing so much wisdom. It's been a pleasure to get to know you here in this uh, podcast episode. It's been such, you know, it's been a pleasure for me to be able to, to engage in a dialogue with both of you and to really share, you know, where we come from, because that's the other thing is that as Latinas, you know, we're not a monolithic group. We have different experiences and we can think that we're all understanding of our own cultural norms, but there's so much diversity and so much that we still need to learn from one another. So thank you all for having me. It was a pleasure to be able to um, speak to your listeners. And I hope you all have a wonderful day. Thank you, Lena. Now to our BIPOC business shout out, we have Diaspora Co. Spices. Diaspora Co. sells single origin spices sourced from small family farms across South Asia. If you're like me and have been cooking from home and in need of specific spices that your local grocery store does not provide, it's nice to be able to order them online. You can even build your own pack of custom spices. Definitely check them out, give to your friends and family, and continue to support bag pop businesses when possible. As always, uh, details on where you can buy from Diaspora Co. will be in our episode description. For all of our listeners, you can email us at chicana code switchers at gmail.com and send us your poc business conference and event shout outs and listener letters you could also record a listener message on anchor app and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes follow us on instagram at chicana code switchers and on twitter at x code switchers if you would like to support this podcast you can venmo or cash app us at Chicana Code Switchers and or become a Patreon contributor. Thank you and don't forget, switch the code, don't let the code switch you.